You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. And people are flipping out. Jesus is the talk of the town. Uh, Bigger than that. He is the talk of the city. Bigger than that. He is the talk of the nation. The town of Jerusalem is a buzz. All the Jewish people come to Jerusalem at Passover. It was one of the three feasts that were required that all people would attend. And there are millions of people in Jerusalem at this time. And everyone is talking about Jesus. Jesus. Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. It's not the first time Jesus has raised someone from the dead. Uh, He he raised Jairus' daughter, a 12-year-old little girl, from the dead. Uh, But after he did that, he told his disciples, don't tell anyone this. It's not the right time for my fame to be, go out. And uh, he said, you know, so he kept that quiet. Furthermore, uh, Jairus' daughter, 12 years old, had only been dead for a very short period of time. And Jesus brought her back to life. Not that that's any less miraculous, but Lazarus was dead for days. He was dead for a week. And everyone knew of his death. They were at the memorial service for crying out loud. And days after that, Jesus comes and says, roll away the stone. And the sisters, Mary and Martha, say, Jesus, are you kidding? By now he stinketh. Uh, uh, King James, right? Uh, By now he stinketh. And uh, he said, didn't I not say that your brother would live again? And, uh, And he says, Lazarus, come forth. And so now everyone is there at Passover. They've all come to celebrate the Passover. And the man they're looking for, Jesus. We've heard about him. We've heard the stories. uh, And it's amazing. Now, uh, today, uh, think of this. I mean, uh, 2,000 years ago today, Palm Sunday. So let's bring ourselves and our minds back. Here we are, it's Palm Sunday. And we don't know what's coming today. Yesterday, we just had a dinner party for Jesus. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, all siblings, they were so stoked that Lazarus was raised from the dead, they threw a giant dinner party for Jesus. And Jesus goes to the dinner party, the guest of honor. And while he's there, imagine the joy. You're with Jesus, and he's just raised this Lazarus from the dead. And Mary, her heart moved with appreciation. Spontaneous, I'm sure. Goes to her drawer, opens it up, and pulls out an alabaster box of fragrant ointment. It was probably being saved for her wedding. It was probably an heirloom. It was of extreme worth. And she brings it to Jesus and she breaks it open and she 
pours the oil on his feet as she is crying in appreciation of this man Jesus, the Savior of the world, who loves her like she's never been loved, has transformed her life and raised her brother from the dead. Now it is the next, uh, they have the party that night. It's a special uh, time and, and the next morning Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem and he tells the disciples, hey, we're going to Jerusalem and he knew that it would be his death. He knew that it would be the last week of his life and notice what he says here. Uh, uh, wrong glasses. Uh, uh, notice what he says. Uh, we're going to... Uh, Look at Luke 18, verse 31. Are you there? We're going to spend our time in 19, but we're going to look at a couple verses here in 18. Luke 18, 31. Let's pray as we open God's word. Uh, Jesus, uh, we open your word right now, and Lord, we would be a fool not to bow our heads before you and say thank you for this sacred text that you have preserved throughout the ages. This sacred text that records all of the detail of what you have accomplished for us. Not only in your life, Lord, but for centuries before, as you spoke through the prophets about your coming, you have preserved and saved it all. We thank you for its deliverance to us, uh, that you inspired it, and we thank you, Lord, that you have preserved it. And now we ask, Lord, that you would write it on our hearts that we might not sin against you. We pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Verse 31, then he took the 12 aside, the 12 disciples, and he said to them, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and all the things that are written by the prophets concerning the son of man will be accomplished. Uh, notice that. What did Jesus call himself there? The son of man. That is, by the way, his favorite title for himself. He could have easily chose the Alpha and the Omega, for he was. He could have easily chose Emmanuel, God with us, for he was. He could have easily chose the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, for he was. But for Jesus, his favorite title of himself, Son of Man. Can you tell me why? Well, it was... It's because it revealed what we studied last week, the incredible price that he, he paid just to become a man. For he emptied himself of all of his glory and he entered into the world as a human. And he lived all of his life as a regular man. And we looked at that last week, the kinsman redeemer. Before he could go to the cross, and purchase our salvation, he had to first be our kinsman. And so his favorite title for himself was Son of Man. Wow. And here we see in this little passage we're going to look at, Jesus gives six remarkable prophecies that will be fulfilled in the next seven days. Wow. The first one that we, we just read, did you see it? All that, the ancient prophets, all that the ancient prophets said about the Messiah would be fulfilled in Jerusalem. 
uh, quite a prophecy that Jesus makes right here. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and all the things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. You can put a little number one right there, his first prophecy. Verse 32, for he, that is the Son of Man, uh, will be delivered to the Gentiles. The second prophecy that he gives is that uh, Jesus will be delivered to the Gentiles for a trial. That the Jews would hand them over, hand him over to Rome for the trial of a criminal's trial. He's going to be put on trial as a criminal. Are you kidding me? It was prophesied about him. He would be numbered with the transgressors. Can you imagine putting Jesus up and partnering him and making him a, a criminal like Jeffrey Dahmer? Numbered with the transgressors. And here Jesus says that he will be delivered to the Gentiles for a trial. Let's look at the third prophecy Jesus gives us. Back to back, uh, verse 32, he will be delivered to the Gentiles. And then the third prophecy, he will be mocked and insulted and spat upon. In other words, he will be tortured. Uh, this, this is going to happen to him. Look at the fourth prophecy. They will scourge him. Uh, we will look at this on Good Friday. Uh, the Romans had invented a torture system that was barbaric. It, was, uh, it would get criminals to confess their crimes. They would strap their arms over a whipping post and tie their arms tight so that the skin on the back was fully taut. And then they would get a cat of nine tails and whip it across the back uh, and get them to confess their crimes. And uh, Jesus says, they're going to scourge me. Uh, number five, they're going to kill the Son of Man. They're going to kill him. And number six, and the third day, he will rise again. Uh, six incredible prophecies that Jesus will resurrect from the dead on the third day. And Jesus tells all the disciples this the morning after the dinner party as he sets his face to go into Jerusalem. And here's the question for you. If you knew all these things, would you go? Would you set your face on Jerusalem? Jesus, knowing what this Passion Week would hold, and again, I encourage you, read it this week. Be in awe of your King, of your Savior. Learn all that he did for you. But if you knew all that was coming, would you go? Jesus knew. Jesus knew. And he tells all this to the disciples. Look at verse 34. This is interesting. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. And they did not know the things which were just spoken. Uh, why not? What, was there any ambiguity in what Jesus said? Look at this list. Is it confusing in any way, shape, or form? Is it not crystal clear? Why then did they not understand any of the things that Jesus had said? Why? Why? Let me hear from you. What was that? Spiritually blind? Uh, well, they understood a lot of things about Jesus. They weren't totally blind. I mean, they, they, uh, they believed he was the Messiah. Not a bad answer. I'm just dialoguing with you. What else? 
They didn't want to believe he would die. Okay, why didn't they want to believe he would die? Oh, they wanted him to establish his kingdom. Why did they want him to establish his kingdom? Because that's what they believed about God. They thought the Messiah was coming to establish his kingdom and to overthrow Rome. And that was what they wanted to believe. And why am I bringing all this up? Here's why. Pay attention. You and I are no different. Sometimes it's our preconceived ideas about God that actually hinder our drawing closer to God. God is not who you want him to be. God is not who you wish he was. God is not who you would be if you were God and you were perfect. A lot of times, if we don't read our Bible, we still believe in God. But do you know who we believe in? The God we make up. And the God we make up is often our alter ego if we were perfect. But that is not who God is. And he will not let you invent him. He will not change. One of the things I fear and tremble about being a pastor is that the Bible says, let not many of you be teachers, for theirs is a stricter judgment. By who? By God and by man. Uh, and by God is the one I'm worried about. Because I am not representing a right way of thinking. I am not representing a good moral lifestyle. I am not representing good foundational truths to build your life on. Yes, it is all of these things, but that's not what I am representing. I am representing what? A true and living God who has a specific will and does not want to be misrepresented. And oftentimes our preconceived ideas about God are the very thing that hinder us from moving forward in a deeper relationship with God. And that's what was happening to the disciples. They had their own idea of what they wanted Jesus to do. Peter made it really clear. Uh, no, Jesus, I'm never going to let you go to the cross. To which Jesus said what? Get behind me, Satan. Uh, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of the flesh. You don't have in mind God's will for your life. You have in mind your will for your life. And so that was the problem that was happening here with the disciples. His teaching was crystal clear. These were six remarkable prophecies. All of them would be fulfilled this uh, on this week. All of them were fulfilled exactly as Jesus said. But uh, they had a hard time understanding because they had their own preconceived ideas it reveals to us doesn't it that Jesus's death on the cross was not an accident it was planned before the beginning of time uh, it is the very reason that Jesus came to this earth uh, Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane uh, uh, we talked about this last week his soul was deeply grieved and he prayed he said father what should I say save me from this hour could he have prayed, save me from this hour? Of course. We know he told Pilate, do you not know that right now I could call a legion of angels and deliver me? You have no power over me if it wasn't given to you by God. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, what should I say, save me from this hour? He said, no, for this purpose I have come. I came for this purpose. I am Buying, I am purchasing the redemption of mankind.
And at this point, Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem to be crucified. Oh, the depths of his love for you. How rich is God's love for you? God became a man and went to a cross to pay the punishment of our sins, of my sins, of your sins. Will he not give you all things that are in his will? May we align ourselves properly. May we be in awe of his love and may it move us to the core. And now Jesus begins his journey to the cross. Uh, let's take a look. Uh, let's, I'm going to uh, jump us in chapter 19 down to verse 28. 1928, are you there? And when he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem, his final week. And it came to pass, when he drew near to Bethphage and to Bethany, at the mount called Olivet, or the Mount of Olives, that he sent two of his disciples. Uh, the Mount of Olives, by the way, uh, I can't wait to go to Israel with you in October. It's going to be amazing. Uh, I can still picture it. I can still see it. When you stand on the Mount of Olives, it is a profound place. That's where Jesus spent the, the, the night in prayer at the Garden of Gethsemane. And there on the Mount of Olives, you're standing on it, and it drops down right into the Kadron Valley. And then over the Kadron Valley, on the other side, then you go up to the Temple Mount. And so there on the Mount of Olives, he's looking at the Temple Mount where he knows he's about to go into and all of this is going to unfold. And there standing on the Temple Mount, excuse me, on the Mount of Olives, looking over at the Temple Mount, knowing what is coming. Can you imagine what is on his heart? He goes through with it. And look what he says. He tells the disciples, go into the village, verse 30, to the village opposite of you. Where as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no man has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. Uh, very interesting, by the way. Um, why all the drama? Why all the hoopla? Well, Jesus is doing something. Uh, number one, a, a donkey, a colt, that no one has ever sat on. How many of you would like to try riding a donkey that no one has ever sat on? What's going to happen? It's going to buck you off. Anybody who's ever broke a horse or trained a horse, you, you know this, right? Like, that's a wild ride. Uh, why a donkey that was never sat on? Well, it was... Uh, there's a, an, an analogous verse in the book of Numbers that talks about the red heifer. How many of you ever heard about the red heifer? Uh, we don't have time to go into that, but uh, the Jewish people are looking for red heifers today or trying to get, find one again. And, and well, this red heifer had to be perfect and there was all the, the rabbinical tradition, all kinds of things about it had to be just a so-and-so. But one of the things was it could never be yoked or ridden uh, or it would be disqualified. And the idea was, in the Jewish mindset was, that once the animal was profaned for any other use, it was no longer fit for sacred use. And so here he says, get this donkey that no one has ever rode on. And you're going to go into this place, and you're going to go, and you're going to get it, and you're going to say, hey, uh, get this donkey. Um, look at this, verse uh, 31. Verse 31. 
And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. Great answer. Uh, Lord has need of it. Uh, uh, here we see what Jesus is saying. What's he, what's he asking the disciples to do? Go steal a pickup truck, basically. <laughs> go steal a pickup truck. Uh, uh, he's not stealing it, but go, go borrow a pickup. And so what are they thinking? No one's going to give us their donkey. A donkey was a very valuable commodity, just like a pickup truck is right now. What do you mean? Uh, but they go. Uh, hold on to those thoughts. We'll look at why Jesus is doing this. Uh, verse 32. So those who were sent went their way. And guess what? They found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to, said to them, I'm going to paraphrase. What in the heck are you doing? Why are you stealing my pickup truck? Right? Uh, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And the owner of the donkey went, oh, okay. What does this reveal? Well, it reveals a couple of things. Number one, it reveals that Jesus's fame is now renowned. The whole town is buzzing about Jesus. So much so that when you take a pickup truck out of the parking lot and you say, Jesus needs it, the owner says, oh, then yes, yes, please use my pickup truck. Wow, his fame is getting renowned. Secondly, why is Jesus doing all this drama? Why all this fanfare? Here's why, because they just understood nothing about all that he told them. He told them he was going to the cross. And what did they understand? Whew, nothing. So here's what he does. He sets up some circumstances that show his sovereignty over the whole thing. Because he doesn't want the disciples to think, oh my gosh, what a horrible, tragic mistake. They killed Jesus. No, 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 no. All of this was planned and he was sovereign over every single detail. The disciples are going to need that come Friday. The disciples are going to need that come Saturday, right? And they'll, re they'll reflect back on this incredible detail of this. Um, lost my spot. Why are you loosing the donkey? The Lord has need of it. And they brought him to Jesus, that's the donkey, and they threw their clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And even the donkey obeys the creator of the universe. He doesn't buck. He doesn't uh, cause any problem. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. John's gospel tells us that so what they proclaimed is Hosanna. Everybody shout it. Hosanna. Hosanna. One more time. Hosanna. Hosanna. You are speaking Hebrew. Hosanna means... Lord, 
save now. Save now, Lord. Uh, Hosanna means save now. They were all shouting Hosanna. Look what it says. They cried with a loud voice, Hosanna, for all the mighty works they had seen. What mighty works had they seen? Well, they had just seen what? Lazarus raised from the dead. They had just seen blind Bartimaeus have his sight restored. They had just seen one of the most corrupt, wicked tax collectors named Zacchaeus, short little guy, big ego, get humbled and repent and come clean. And guess what Zacchaeus has been doing this last week? Giving back money to everybody he took too much from with interest. They have just seen the lame walk. They have just seen the the feeding of the 5,000. They have just heard this profound teaching. They have just seen all these things and they now see him riding in on Palm Sunday and they are shouting Hosanna. And look at verse 38. Uh, They sing a song from Psalm 118. We're going to look at it, uh, Psalm 118, in just a minute. But look, this is a quote from there. Uh, They sing, blessed is, say it with me. The king, circle the word the king. Blessed is the king, capital K, the king of all kings who comes in the name of Yahweh. The king in the name of Jehovah, in the name of Yahweh, yeah, that is the king of all. Uh, Look what this psalm quotes. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of Yahweh. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Look at this next thing. Circle this. Peace in heaven. What do you mean peace in heaven? Has there not been peace in heaven? No, there's always been peace in heaven. What's he talking about, peace in heaven? What do they mean, peace in heaven? What are they talking about? Peace in heaven between who? Between God and man. You see, since the fall in the garden, man has been opposed to God. And now, at the coming of King Jesus, man will be made in right standing with God. The king of Yahweh, peace between man and God in heaven. Amazing psalm they're singing. And look at the third thing they say, and glory in the highest to who? Glory in the highest to God uh, for his love, for his power for his ability to save sinners. Glory to God in the highest for his ability to make us righteous. And uh, this is the song they are singing, how profound it is, how profound. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? Wouldn't you have loved to have been one of the ones there who was worshiping from a pure heart? For there were some that were there worshiping with a pure heart. And they understood the majesty and the splendor of the Son of Man who came in humility to purchase these amazing things for us. Matthew's gospel tells us that they were calling him the son of David. What does that mean, the son of David? Son of David, what does that mean, Bible scholars? God had promised to King David 
God had made a covenant with King David that David, the lineage from your, one of your sons will remain on the throne for how long? Forever. And he will govern not only Israel, but all of the earth. Jesus was the greater David. David was the king of all the earth. Jesus is the greater David. David was only a foreshadow of Jesus. And here in the book of Matthew, it says they were saying, son of David, in addition to this psalm that they were quoting here. Um, uh, really powerful. Uh, the, the, the significance of this is staggering. Uh, verse 39, and some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, and they said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Uh, first problem, they called him what? Teacher, wrong title. Is he a teacher? Oh, absolutely. But he is far more than a teacher. He is the Messiah. He is God in the flesh. And they're asking him to rebuke all these people worshiping him. Why? Why are they so outraged? They think the people are committing blasphemy because they are calling Jesus the Messiah. They are calling Jesus God. And they are saying, teacher, rebuke the disciples. And I love Jesus' answer. Look what he says. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out praises and worship of me. Wow. What is Jesus saying in all that? What is he saying? What is he Proclaiming, he's saying, listen, this very moment was prophesied and God's word will never be broken. And if God's people were not worshiping me, the very stones, if, if, the, if the children of Israel aren't worshiping me, the very stones of Israel would worship me. Why? Because my word said that this would happen and it would be fulfilled exactly as he said. Which leads us to some points that I want to bring you into about the lordship of Jesus Christ. And the first point that we clearly see that Jesus is clearly revealing to us with prophesying these six things, with saying this information about the donkey and everything, and saying about the rocks crying out, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, no one takes my life from me. I am the Lord of all. I have foretold these things. I have designed all these things. This is my plan of salvation planned out before the universe was ever created. And it's happening exactly as I said it would. So much so that if these people did not shout praises to me, even the rocks would cry out because this day was planned before the beginning of time. I am the Lord of what? All. I am the Lord of the donkey who will not buck. And I am the Lord of the rocks who would cry out. My will will be done. Why? Because I am Lord of what? All. All, All meaning everything. The people were shouting praises to Jesus as he entered into the city. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of Jehovah. I am that Jehovah. I am Lord of all. 
And uh, they were acknowledging that Jesus is the Messiah. And the ancient prophets had foretold that the Messiah would come and that he would save them. And now here he is, the day that they were waiting for, the day that the ancient prophets longed to look into, it is now here. Uh, The prophet Zechariah spoke of this day. And Jesus is fulfilling it verbatim. Here's a verse for you, Zechariah 9.9, a profound verse for this day. Let me hear you read it in a thundering voice. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation. He is lowly, which means humble, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. By the way, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, when it says this verse, it says a new colt. In other words, that had never been ridden, the foal of a donkey. Uh, notice what this verse is saying. Jesus is coming humbly. He's not coming as a conquering king to overthrow everyone. He's coming lowly, and he's coming to purchase your salvation. Uh, And it says, rejoice. Do you know what worship really is? Worship in the purest sense. Worship in spirit and in truth is nothing less and nothing more than us rejoicing over God's love for us. Lord, you're amazing. The fact that you love us this much. The fact that you are so magnificent and and so glorious. And yet you care about me. In Psalm 8, the psalmist would write, When I consider the moon and the stars which you have ordained. When I look up into the sky and I see the Milky Way galaxy. And the endless light years of space that go on for eternity. When I consider the moon and the stars, the works of your hands which you have ordained, what is man that you're mindful of him? What is man that you would visit him? What is man that you would care that I just told a lie? And you would want to come to me and say, Dave, why did you do that? What is man? Who am I that you would care about how I just spoke to my wife? And you would say, Dave, why why did you treat your wife that way? What is man that you would come and you would say, Dave, I saw what you did with that person. I saw how you loved. Uh, As much as you did it to the least of these, you have done that to me. Lord, when I consider the works of your hands, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, who am I? And worship at its best, worship at its core, is just the heart going, Lord, I'm blown away by who you are. And for that, he says, bring that back up, please. Rejoice, daughter of Zion. And they are. Uh, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem was a fulfillment of this ancient prophecy. And it showed everyone that Jesus is the rightful king of Israel. He is the Lord of what? All. All. And not only is he the Lord of all, he is sovereign. He is sovereign. What does sovereign mean? Well, he is revealing his sovereignty 
by foretelling what's going to happen when you ask for the donkey, but by foretelling six prophecies that are going to happen this week, by foretelling these things from centuries in advance, before the beginning of time, these things all laid out, he's revealing a sovereignty. What does sovereignty mean? It means complete control of everything. May your soul rest in the sovereignty of God. If you are in Christ, there is nothing that is coming your way that is not father-filtered. Uh, here, he is the sovereign God, and he is showing us this incredible sovereignty. Uh, this event was prophesied. You want to know how sovereign God is? This event, this Palm Sunday event, when Jesus would ride in, not only was it prophesied in, in Zechariah, but the very day. The very day of this event was prophesied in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, uh, written centuries in advance. The very day was prophesied. Can you imagine? Let me set it up for you. We don't have time to go to Daniel chapter 9. It would take the whole service to unpack that text. But let me give you a, a, uh, a Reader's Digest version of it, can I? Uh, Daniel was a young man when Jerusalem was... Uh, captured and uh, taken uh, by force by King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, the reason Israel had fallen into idolatry. Israel had quit worshiping the true God for who he is and they reinvented God. They still had church services, they still went to temple, but it wasn't the true and living God. They had put God's name on a different God and worshiped him differently. And to that end, God said, I'm going to bring judgment on you to bring repentance so that you'll. And so God raised up a king. His name, Nebuchadnezzar. He was the most powerful world, re world leader to that date. And I want you to know something. I want you to learn from this. The leaders of the world are like chess pieces in God's hands. He can give power to one and he can take away power from another just like that and the leaders God gives us are directly in relation to our individual relationship with God as a people group and so God raises up a leader who is coarse and he makes them extremely powerful and he takes Israel into captivity and he burns Jerusalem to the ground when we go to Jerusalem, you can still see a level of strata in the soil that is all black where Babylon burned Jerusalem to the ground. Still there today. And uh, he com completely demolishes the temple and he takes all of the Jewish people into captivity into Babylon for 70 years of captivity. And while young Daniel, uh, just a teenager when he goes in, he keeps his heart fixed and focused on God during that entire time. And God uses him powerfully. And there as Daniel is praying for Israel that has been ransacked, God speaks to him and says, I'm going to rebuild Israel again. And God gives Daniel an amazing prophecy, one of the most amazing prophecies in the Bible. It's Daniel chapter 9. And he tells Daniel this, Daniel, a pagan king is going to issue a decree to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem. Right now, Jerusalem is, the temple's destroyed and it's all burned down, right? He says there's going to be a pagan king 
who's going to issue a decree to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem. He's actually going to pay for it. And on the day that that pagan king issues that decree, set your stopwatch. Set your calendar. Mark it to the very day. Why? Because from 483 years to the very day, the Messiah will ride in and present himself as the king of Israel. 483 years to the very day from that time that the order is given to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, set your, your stopwatch because on the 483rd year, uh, the Messiah will run in as king of Babylon. Well, we don't have to guess on this. We can look back in the history books and we can know King Artaxerxes is the king who overthrew Babylon. He was the king of Persia. And King Artaxerxes I overthrew Babylon and Nehemiah was one of his employees, was a worker in his court and Nehemiah came and stood before King Artaxerxes one day and he said, King I am in great sorrow over Jerusalem and King Artaxerxes issues a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem and he paid for it. He was the king of Persia. And here is a picture for him and historians will tell us, this isn't even just Bible history, you can get this in, in just secular history, that decree was written on May 14th, 445 B.C., the decree from King Artaxerxes to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem. Are you tracking with me? Yes. Now, if you subtract 483 years from 445 B.C., and you make an adjustment for 360-day years instead of 365-day years because the Jewish calendar was 360-day years, guess what day you get? You get Sunday, April 6th, 32 A.D., the very day that Jesus came in on Palm Sunday. Why? Why? Because this plan of salvation was laid out in exquisite detail before the foundation of the earth. And Jesus and the God of the Old Testament and all of the prophets are saying, no one takes my life from me I lay it down willingly, and I foretold it from the beginning of time. Jesus' death was not an accident. He is sovereign. He is the Lord of all. And uh, this is just amazing. Uh, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, lowly, meek, having salvation, just like Zechariah prophesied, just like Daniel 9 prophesied. On the very day he comes in, he is the Lord of all. Palm Sunday plan before the foundation of the earth. The prophets wrote of it. Here's another verse that speaks of it. Isaiah 25, 9. Let me hear you read this one. Written 700 years before Jesus. And it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. This is Yahweh. We have waited for him, and we will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Just amazing. The crowds were worshiping with joy. The Messiah is here, but they have no idea how expensive their salvation really is. They think their Messiah is going to set up a kingdom. 
They have no idea that they wouldn't even be in the kingdom if he set it up. What good is a kingdom without people in it? And Jesus, knowing this, did not come to set up his earthly kingdom. Not yet. He'll come back the second time for that. Uh, He came the first time in great humility. He's coming the second time in tremendous power. But he came here to establish the kingdom so that you might be in it. Uh, And uh, Jesus knows the high price. The people have no idea the price, but Jesus knows the price. And driven by his love for us, Jesus, the Lord of all, Yahweh, who is with us, willingly enters Jerusalem to go to the cross on our behalf to purchase our salvation. Is not the plan of redemption beyond comprehension? Is it not amazing? All of the prophets wrote of it. Look what Isaiah said of it in Isaiah 53. Uh, This king, he was wounded for our transgressions. Uh, the parentheses I put in there, and I'll tell you why in, a reason, for in just a moment. Right now, let's just read the words uh, of the Bible. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. What is Isaiah telling us? Yes, the Messiah will come. And he will come to take the wrath of God upon his own shoulders. The wrath of God for our sin will be placed on him. And by his stripes we are healed. Now I put some words in parentheses. Do you know why? Because there are worthless shepherds who are, are, are telling people and lying to them that by his stripes you are healed of your financial problems. By his stripes, you are healed of your health and sickness problems. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. Jesus did not come to make you financially prosperous. Jesus came to do exactly what this verse says. Let's look at it again. He was wounded for our transgressions. Well, what are transgressions? Well, transgressions are sins against God. God said, you shall have no other gods before me. And guess what we all have done? We've put a lot of things as more important in our life than God. God said, you shall not take my name in vain. And guess what we have done? God said, you shall not lie. And guess what we have done? We have done a lot of sins against God. And Jesus was wounded for those sins. Furthermore, it says he was bruised for our iniquities. What are are iniquities? Well, iniquities are immoralities. They're deceptions. They're selfishness. They're arrogance. They're pride. It's ego. It's just boasting of self. It's elevating self. It's worshiping self. All of those things are iniquities. And here's what it says, the chastisement or the punishment or the wrath for our peace was put upon him and by his stripes we are healed. Healed of what? Healed of all our transgressions and all of our iniquities. Not healed of a financial hardship, please. Now, I'm not saying God won't bless you financially. Obviously, he does. But that is not the point of this verse. And let's not reduce it into something far less. 
Here the crowds were singing this psalm from Psalm 118. Uh, It's profound. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of Yahweh. Peace with man in heaven between man and God. And glory to God in the highest for what he has accomplished. Uh, I want you to flip over to Psalm 118. And while you're flipping over there, let me tell you some interesting insights about Psalm 118. Number one, Psalm 118, we don't know who the author was. It goes all the way back. You see, it has been sung at every Passover since the days of Moses. It's a Passover psalm. And every Passover, they would sing this psalm. Number two, we already saw it was recited by the crowds on Palm Sunday. What they were singing was Psalm 118. Why? Well, because it's a psalm about Jesus. Thirdly, Psalm 118 was the last psalm that was sung by Jesus and the disciples at the Lord's Supper. Do you remember in Matthew 26, 30, it says they sung a hymn and they went in then to the Garden of Gethsemane. Before they go into the Garden of Gethsemane, before Jesus went and prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, he and the disciples sung Psalm 118. Fourthly, Jesus alluded to the, to the possibility, to the very probability that this psalm will be sung again at his second coming. So it's a powerful song. Let's, let's look at it. Psalm 118, are you there? Yeah. We're going to have to go fast because I'm battling that clock. Uh, a psalm about Jesus, Psalm 118. Uh, look at this. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His mercy endures forever. This is a song. Let's make it a song. I want you to sing this part. His mercy endures forever. Will you do that? Okay, let's let's go. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Let Israel now say. Let the house of Aaron now say. And let all those who fear the Lord now say. Oh, that was so fun. Uh, Way to go. Here we are. We're singing the psalm, right? Uh, Now, notice this. Uh, Verse 1, let everyone say his mercy endures forever. Verse 2, let Israel say his mercy endures forever. Verse 3, let the house of Aaron. Who's the house of Aaron? The priests, the religious leaders, let them say his mercy. And uh, verse 4, let those who fear the Lord, those who have entered into a relationship with God. Let them say his mercy endures forever. Uh, Verse 5. I called on the Lord in distress. Distress? Yeah, in distress of all my sins, in distress of all my failures. And the Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. I cried to the Lord about my sin and failures and my miserable shortcomings And he says, I will redeem you. I will give you victory. And I will give you the kingdom. I will set you on a broad place. Verse 6. The Lord Jehovah is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Answer? Nothing. God is for me. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. Paul would borrow from this when he wrote Romans 8, 28. Uh, through 34, if God is for us, what? Who can be against us? 
And here he's saying, Yahweh is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do for me? For Yahweh is for me. He is among those who help me. Or in other words, God is my helper. A picture of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Therefore, I shall see my desire on those who hate me. That's probably a bad translation. Uh, The ESV translates it this way. Therefore, I shall look in triumph over those who hate me. That's probably better. In other words, I'm going to see God's judgment on this wicked, sinful world, and I'm going to see him restore all the saints who, who, who love him. Uh, verse 8, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. What does it mean to put confidence in man? What does that mean? It means to put your confidence in your own human abilities. It means to put your confidence in your job. It means to put your confidence in wealth. It means to put your confidence on what you can do. Uh, And look what he says. It is better to trust in Yahweh than to put your confidence in yourself. Verse 9. It is better to trust in Yahweh, Jehovah, than to put confidence in princes. What are princes? Government. Hey, Christians should definitely be involved in government, but don't ever put your trust in government. It'll only let you down. And I am all for the church being politically active and making a stand, and Christians, we need to stand. It is time to stand. Uh, I want you to do me a favor. Call Bill DeBear. You know Bill DeBear? The, the little kid toy? They just came out with drag show Bill, Bill DeBear. Do me a favor. Pick up your phone. I did it yesterday, uh, Friday. Uh, pick up your phone. Call Bill DeBear this week and say, enough. Enough. I will never take my kids or my grandkids or my grandkids to the 15th generation to Bill DeBear. Right? Enough. So I am all for being active in our community, but do not put your trust in government. Put your trust where? In God. Yeah. Uh, for time's sake, we need to skip. Let's jump down to verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness. Jesus, and I, and I will go through them. Jesus, by the way, standing on the Mount of Olives, would be looking up over the Temple Mount at the East Gate that he would enter into. And then he would exit out of and go to his crucifixion. Open to me the gates of righteousness and I will go through them. And I will praise the Lord, Jehovah. This is the gate of Jehovah through which the righteous shall enter. The cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no one can come to the Father except he comes through me. I will praise you. Who are we praising in verse 21? I will praise you. Who's you? It's God. I will praise you, God, for you have answered me. And notice this. And you have become my salvation. Who has? God has become my salvation. Crazy. Look at verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Jesus would quote this to the religious leaders in Matthew 21. 
This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our sight. The stone which the builders rejected. Who were the builders? All of the religious leaders. They rejected the stone, Jesus, and that has become the chief cornerstone or the very foundation of all faith, of all religion, of our salvation. Uh, And this is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. What is the Lord's doing? Becoming a man, being rejected by man, and going to the cross on our behalf. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Wow. This is the day that Jehovah has made, a day planned before the foundation of the world. What day? A day when they would reject the stone, the, 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 the builders would reject the stone and it would become the chief cornerstone. That is the day that Jesus went to the cross. That day is the day that the Lord has made and we will rejoice and be glad in it. We often say when we're, when we're on vacation or when we're, we're in a happy place or when we're skiing, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Yeah, it's referring to a set day. What day? The day Jesus went to the cross. Wow. And look at verse 25. Save now, I pray. You can say the word what? Hosanna. That, that, that is the word in Hebrew. If you're reading Hebrew Bible, it would say right there, Hosanna, O Yahweh. O Yahweh, I pray, send now prosperity. That's what they were shouting out on Palm Sunday. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the psalm they were singing. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord, and he has given us light. What does that mean, given us light? What does it mean, given us light? Oh, who said that? Brilliant. Jamel, giving us understanding. God is it's just, you know, I, don't want to, I don't want to say it wrong. Look what he says. God is Jehovah, and he has given us understanding, light. Understanding about what? Well, look at the next part. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. Circle bind the sacrifice, and what is the sacrifice? We'll draw a little circle back to verse 26. It is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Who is he who comes in the name of the Lord? We'll draw a little circle back. It's verse 22. It's the stone which the builders have rejected. It's Jesus. And here it says, God is the Lord. He's given us the green light. Bind the sacrifice with cords. That is God. God himself was bound with cords to the horns of the altar on the cross. Oh, my goodness. Look at verse 28. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God. I cannot believe how you love me, that you would do all this for me, and I will exalt you. Oh, give thanks to Jehovah, for he is good. And the whole church said, His mercy endures forever. What a powerful psalm. What a powerful message. 
And uh, Palm Sunday reveals that Jesus is the sovereign Lord of all. And he is in charge of everything. And this salvation was planned out from the very beginning. And here's the reality. If he is the sovereign Lord of all, then he is also the Lord of what? Our lives. All people. He is the sovereign Lord of all, and he is the Lord of all our lives. Whether or not we acknowledge him as Lord, he is still what? Lord of all lives. And every person will give an answer to him as Lord. You just choose how you want to do it. Everyone will give an account to him. He is the Lord of our lives. When we accept Jesus as our Savior, then we acknowledge him as the Lord of our lives. And that means that we give him the position of authority to control everything that we say and, that, and everything that we do. Uh, here's the question for us. Why does Jesus need to be the Lord of our life? Why would that be a, a, a requirement? Well, I want you to know it's not because he needs worship. I want you to know it's not because he needs our skills or our talents. It's not because he needs our money. It's not because he needs our worship, our worship of him. He doesn't need any of these things we have. I want you to know he is not narcissistic. He is not insecure. He is not in need of people's praise. God himself has said, if I were hungry, I would not ask you. So he doesn't need anything from us. Why then does he need, want us to be, uh, make him Lord of our life? He doesn't need our love. He needs nothing from us because we need him. The reason he wants us to make him Lord is because he loves us. And he wants the very best for us. And the moment we make anything else Lord of our life, what happens to us? We are, de we are diminished. We become a gambler instead of a son of God. We become an alcoholic instead of a son of God. We become a sex addict instead of a son of God. We become a worshiper of money instead of a son or a daughter of God. We become far less. And God says, don't let anything else become your Lord. It will destroy your life. It will make you less. Making Jesus Lord means that Jesus is our highest priority. He is our highest authority. And he is our highest love. That's what it means to make him Lord of all. Uh, and it has been well said. It is a good cliche. It is worth repeating. He is not Lord of all unless he is Lord of all in our life. In other words, he is not the Lord of your Sunday unless he is also the Lord of your Monday. In other words, he is not the Lord of your, your sanctuary or your church if he is not also the Lord of your business dealings. He is not the Lord of your life unless he is the Lord of your tongue. Does that mean we do everything perfectly? No, but the moment we mess up, what do we do? We acknowledge him as Lord and we say, Lord, clean me up. I want to get back on your path. 
I've fallen. And so uh, he is Lord of our life. Um, Jesus wants to be Lord of our life for our sake. Because I want you to know this. Jesus is way better at running your life than you are. He, He is way better at running my life than I am. And here's the question. Are you letting him run your life? Many, making anything else, Lord, will reduce you, will reduce me, and will rob us of all that God has for us. Jesus' lordship in our life is our highest and our best use, and it leads us to abundant life. Astonishingly, even though Jesus is Lord of all, he does not force our worship of him. Why? Well, it leads us to the next point of his lordship. He is also Lord of our heart. He is Lord of all. He is Lord of our life. And he is Lord of our heart. In other words, he loves you so much that he wants a genuine relationship with you. You come to him for the wrong reasons. And he says, I will not participate in a dysfunctional relationship with you. Have you ever seen a sugar daddy, sugar, sugar wife relationship? Did I say that wrong? You know what I mean. Have you ever seen a young woman with an old dude for his money? Is that clear enough? Do you find that extremely beautiful? Is that true love? And God says, I will have no part of it. Do not come to me to manipulate something out of me. Come to me because you're in awe of my love for you, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Come to me because you you realize who I am and how I care for you. And I will adopt you as my own and give you all that I have. This is your king. This is our Savior. This is his name, Jesus. Jehovah is our salvation. He is the great Redeemer. He is the Lord of all. He is the Lord of our life. He is the Lord of our heart. He will take nothing less. He searches the heart. He knows the heart. He's looking at why we're coming to him. Are you in awe of him? Then the kingdom is yours. And fourthly, he is the Lord of our future. Your future is in his hands. Jesus came the first time lowly and meek to purchase our salvation, and he went to the cross. He's coming again in majesty and power, and he will bring judgment on all those who are against him, who refused his love, who would say, I want none of your ways. I want to do it my way, who disdained all of his love. Jesus is the Lord of all. Uh, He is the Lord of our future, and may we be wise. Can you imagine? uh, We read Palm Sunday, everyone's worshiping, and Jesus is on the donkey, and what is he doing? He's weeping. Why? Because he sees people coming to him for the wrong reasons, and it breaks his heart. Can you imagine being in a church service of this size? And Jesus there in the front row, and we're all singing, we're all praising, we're all worshiping, pastors teaching, we're all saying praise Jesus, and Jesus is weeping 
Because we don't come to him for who he is. We're trying to manipulate something out of him. And Jesus would remind us all, I am the Lord of all. I am the Lord of your life. I am the Lord of your heart. And I am also the Lord of your future. All of your eternity will be determined by if you'll receive my love for you or not. And if you, if you will not, uh, there is a certain and fatal judgment. And it will last for all eternity. Oh my gosh, may we be wise. May we be wise. The Lord is coming again. He is coming in power and great glory. Today is a day of grace until that day comes that we might understand all that Jesus accomplished for us. And he began on Palm Sunday to bring his face to the cross to purchase our redemption and to bring to pass all that he planned from the beginning of time. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.